October 26th, 2012. It's the creative process. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. I'm your host, Jared Ponchat, uh, here along with Jeff Robbins, your co-host. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to have uh, Alex Cornell on the show with us. Yeah, Alex uh, is the author of uh, uh, a really great book called uh, Breakthrough, Overcome, Creative Block, and Spark Your Imagination. It's The whole t- front of the book is the title of the book. It's, it's got a very long title, yeah. but it's a... It's a good. It's kind of a it's short a book, you know. Not too, not, not not a big one, but it's got a lot of ideas in it. Yeah, it's a collection of ninety essays uh, written by creative people, uh, writers, designers, artists, creatives, all kinds of types of people. Mostly writers, designers, artists, and and that sort of thing. Jared, do we have any uh, lullabot announcements to pay for the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> 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 L- Lullabot is currently uh, looking for talented uh, front-end developers. So if you are interested and and would like to work with Lullabot and you have front-end development skills, go to lullabot.com slash jobs and check out the job posting there and apply if you'd like. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to be posting some other positions. We're talking about a designer position on the horizon and maybe a um, mobile uh, iOS developer kind of position. So um, keep an eye out for those or just email us if you're so excited um, about those kinds of things. But yeah, this is a, a, a great a great podcast today. We're, we're really excited to have have Alex on. A uh, really interesting guy who does lots of lots of different things. Uh, Alex is a San Francisco-based uh, designer and musician. He's uh, at Alex Cornell. Uh, that's C-O-R-N-E-L-L. Uh, on Twitter, uh, alexcornell.com. Uh, he's on YouTube as well. He's a musician, uh, youtube.com slash user slash ALX Cornell. Um, he's a contrib- contributing writer on the blog uh, ISO50. Um, he is a co-founder at, uh, and designer at Firespotter Labs, uh, which is a Google Ventures-funded startup. Uh, they made uh, Nosh, uh, Jotly, uh, and a really cool new thing that I actually just discovered called Uber Conference. Uh, thanks so much for being on, Alex. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm very excited. Very excited to be here electronically. <laughs> so, can you tell us first just a little bit about yourself? Uh, just kind of how you wound up being a creative uh, and ending up in a place where you're writing a book about creative block. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, I guess I got into uh, this whole thing uh, through music, which I guess is a pretty a common path for a lot of designers. I uh, started playing guitar when I was pretty young and really enjoyed that. And my goal was to become a favorite or a, a famous musician. That was pretty much my my life's goal for at least ten years. Um, and uh, eventually, the band I was in, we uh, we went separate ways. But I uh, really enjoyed the graphic design portion of what I was doing for the band because, like, you know, every band needs uh, graphic design for something, whether it's a Yep. a show or you know a uh, album cover so i was really into that um and moved out to san francisco i guess maybe about five years ago to uh start doing design 
Um, and at the time I was doing uh, print design and that kind of thing at school. I was getting my master's in design at the Academy of Art here because um, I didn't really have any training. I literally had no idea what I was doing. So I needed some background. Um, and most of my friends at the time that had moved out here as well were kind of in the startup scene and doing like uh, the whole tech thing. And so while I was at school, I was learning print design and kind of marketing and that kind of stuff. But I was really interested in the startup scene. And so a, a few years ago, I kind of merged the two and got into uh, more interaction design and design for technology and software and that kind of thing, which has been was turned out to be a really great decision at the time. Uh, at the time, I kind of did it just to jump in where my friends be able to help out my friends with logos and interfaces and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, that pretty much brings us to today. Well, I guess along the way, um, I started working with Scott Hansen uh, over at ISO 50. And that was, that was a really great, I guess, kind of a, a creative upbringing for me just because he's been one of my favorite designers forever. And it was great to kind of learn uh, as, as I learned at the Academy of Art, simultaneously work with him to learn some more uh, theoretical stuff about design. Cool. So and so, did Firespotter happen through uh, the same kind of mutual friendships, or where did that come from? Uh, so yeah, I guess um, if I remember, it, I had worked uh, for a company called PlanCast, uh, which is uh, I think that they're actually still around. I think they just recently transferred ownership, but they're, they they uh, I did their logo, which is a little penguin, um, and a mutual friend of mine. Uh, who works for Google Ventures really liked the penguin and we started talking just just basically about logos and that kind of stuff um, and so then I, I think at the time they had a company Google Ventures did that needed a little bit of help uh, branding and uh, with their website and that kind of thing so I started working with them kind of I guess as a consultant uh, through Google Ventures for their one of their portfolio companies okay. and I really enjoyed that um, and I think you know that that project went really well and then at that time, uh, I was introduced to Craig Walker, who at the time was uh, the EIR at Google Ventures um, and was leaving to start his own company, uh, which would become Firespire. So I met him just at this juncture, and uh, he and th uh, two other guys, um, four of us, started Firespire back in November 2010. Okay. Uh, so it was a pretty, pretty fortunate, uh, I guess, kind of coincidence of, of uh, connections, I guess, that, that eventually led to Firespire. Right. It's funny that I also, I, I think I, I was in design school. I had to, I actually dropped out briefly of design school to uh, travel with my band. And that was like how, <laughs> how I ended up getting into web design. And Jeff here, uh, uh, well, Jeff, you can speak for yourself, but Jeff also <laughs> came, came well, into. Yeah, also, also musical background. I mean, yeah, I, I, nice. I originally got into design uh, and then eventually into web stuff. Um, because I was making, you know, flyers for my band to try and find <laughs> bass players and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And then realize, realize actually, you know, like I could do, get pretty good money temping doing, uh, you know, this kind of design work in front of the computer. But yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's so funny how, how many people came in this way. <laughs> you know, it's every, yeah, I feel like we should all now start a giant band of graphic designers or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I forgot to mention, I actually also dropped, did the dropout thing too, which I guess now is kind of a cliche, but I, uh, when Firespotter began, mm -hmm. I was actually still in school uh, for design, so I had to drop out to, it was kind of one or the other, unfortunately, but mm -hmm. as, as I'm sure you all know, like with design school, it's, it's the, I guess, 
the important thing is your portfolio and you know the the work that you're doing, not necessarily checking the box at the end. So I, I felt okay to to leave at that the moment that I did. Yeah, yeah. So this, yeah, just dropping out of school to because there's a job already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what seems like a good idea, even though some people see it as quitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Well, especially on the job. yeah the East Coast, I think view view that I'm from the East Coast, and so that that decision didn't go over super well at, at first. Yeah, uh, with, yeah. Oh, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so your you your story seems to be like kind of making relationships with people and and. And I'm curious, like, there's like 90 different people in this book and some great people from lots of different creative disciplines. And I was just kind of curious. I know that it's it started out of a blog post, I think, that you had done on ISO 50. Is that right? Um, Uh, Yep, that's that's correct. Um, And uh, I had done a blog post uh, in 2010 where I asked 25 people to write, basically answer the exact same question. Um, and then the publisher approached me after that and said, hey, we think this could be a book, you know, times five, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I guess times four. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they were they were excited about it and thought and I, that really had never occurred to me. I had uh, never really thought of it um, in that way. You know, I was blogging and that was what I was doing. I never thought about actually publishing something right? Um, until they brought it up. And did you did you already know all ninety of these people? And you're just like, okay, I'll fire off an email to ninety people. <laughs> I wish it were that that simple, but I know I, I I guess the 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 common thread between everyone uh, that's in the book and that I approached for the book was just that I found them to be inspiring to me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I really liked the work of everyone in there, um, and I. I knew a lot of people, at least I guess as as it happens these days through the internet, just having talked, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it was about uh, being featured on the blog at the time, because I usually tried to reach out to people that I wrote about, uh, just because it was always a more exciting article if I could. Um, but I think at least a lot of the designers knew the blog, which was at least a, a good foot in the door to say like, oh, hey, you know, like I wrote this article for this blog. And then that would at least be enough to get someone's attention if I didn't know them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was a little harder to get. I, you know, I remember talking to Wes Anderson's people for a little while, trying desperately to get him in the book. And that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, so I, I reached out to uh, quite a bit of a number of people, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, I think also having a publisher patch helps because a lot these days, a lot of people, um, there are a lot of projects that are just kind of like personal projects. This is a little harder if I'm just some random kid in San Francisco saying, Hey, write for my book. But if you can say, Hey, you know, this publisher, which Princeton architectural press, which is owned by Chronicle books is a Mm -hmm. a reputable publisher, at least in the, in the discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, so most, most people, uh, at least knew that. And that was at least enough to open the email that I sent, I think. Except Wes Anderson. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he was interesting. I, you know, that I, uh, I, I, that was a tough one because I, I got pretty far along the line with them, uh, you know, reaching it, signing up for IMDb Pro, finding out his publicist, his agent, his lawyer, you know, everyone, mm-hmm. and then just emailing everybody, getting a phone call. I remember, I think I was scheduled to talk twice, and then each time they got canceled, and then it just kind of disappeared. But I was so excited, you know, I was like, that one I was really pushing for because I thought that was, he's my favorite director, so that was. <laughs> I, I noticed cool. on your website you have a, 
a video. I guess you'd sort of call it a Wes Anderson homage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, produced for like a festival, like a Wes Anderson festival or something. I remember watching that. Yeah. So that was it's it's uh that's actually a project from school uh, where the project is you basically pick a director and you create the branding materials and the marketing materials for uh, a hypothetical festival. So that none of that, which it was actually kind of problematic because a lot of people thought the festival was real because you know you <laughs> you use you just make up real information, yeah, but you know including you're, me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it had a date and a place. So, you know, right. there were a lot of people I, I that got, um, I think Kotke had written about it. So there were a lot of people outside of, I guess, my circle that were, that had heard about it or were reading about it and which was unexpected. And so then I got a lot of emails saying like, Hey, you know, we see this is coming up. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> and, uh, it was, I, it was actually, yeah, yeah, it was it was a weird experience. I remember the guy from the the Danny Glover's son in World Tenenbaums ended up seeing it and wrote me a letter and was like all excited. And then we were gonna like, uh, he he was actually kind of curious about whether or not the festival was happening. But it felt kind of weird to to if have you to get tell him. Murray to show up, you've really accomplished something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would. <laughs> you just. I, Actually, I mean, there's sort of an interesting thing here, this idea of sort of willing something into being uh, just by yeah. sort of creating what you can, you know? No, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that, that's actually a, it's a really good point. I think when when I found this to be a really good way to go about uh, projects in school or, or I guess these days personal projects, kind of thinking of them as like – you know, what would be something that would, if, if, if it's publicity and that kind of thing that you're after, it's like you can strategically kind of like decide on things that will be noticed by people that you would, you know, like if you're after Wes Anderson for your book, like just crush out a lot of work, you know, that he would see. And like that, it's a kind of a funny way to go about it, but it, it actually, I think, uh, can be actually pretty effective. Right. I mean, not effective of actually getting him in the book, but... No, yeah, sadly not. <laughs> oh, but well. Second printing, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> that would be cool. Maybe if we keep talking about him enough on this podcast, he'll, yeah. word will get... Exactly. Him, yeah, That's exactly. Sort of, that, <laughs> will him into being... Yeah. I, I've been pinging uh, Jonah Lair's agent trying to get Jonah Lair to be on this podcast, and it's like a similar thing. Maybe if I just mention it here on the show, Jonah Lair, yeah. are you listening? I would love you for go. you to be on the podcast. <laughs> Got one just author get, of a creative... <laughs> creative process book you know you could be on yeah. too anyway um so so let's talk, talk a little bit more about sort of the the content of 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 your book i mean uh so again uh the book's called breakthrough uh overcome creative block and spark your imagination um and so i mean it, it's interesting sort of compiling all this information that you're you know these this information that you've gotten from a lot of different people were there sort of threads that you saw um uh through the different things that people were saying i mean were there th things that you particularly learned or felt like you learned as an aggregate uh, about creative block and and getting through it from putting this book together yeah i mean i, I think there there were there were a lot of threads, uh, you know, broadly and kind of like uh, just kind of conceptual threads that were common to a lot of people's. And then there were some there were some really practical kind of outliers that were really unusual strategies that were really, uh, I guess, exciting and new to me. And I think the the most common thread that you see in a lot of them is basically to if you are having a problem with 
creative block to step away. And, and a lot of that oddly took the form for a lot of people as a bike ride. A, a lot of people said go for a bike ride. Um, but the, you know, the, the actual, the, the broader, um, I guess point there for, for most people was just to, if you're having a block, step away, you know, change your context, do something else. Um, whatever that happens to be to just get basically, uh, you know, a clear head. And when you come back to what you're working on, have a new perspective. And, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily something new, but that was usually the kind of like somebody, most people's, uh, kind of like, I guess, afterward where they'd say you could try this, or of course you could also step away. I think most people know, understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, there were some, you know, uh, more practically that I, I really liked. And I think per my personal favorite in that it's kind of my own strategy is you know, yes, step away from what you're doing, but have another creative medium uh, at your disposal or at, uh, you know, something that you do either as a hobby or even professionally that you can kind of alternate between. Uh, Scott Hansen uh, of ISF 50 was the one that wrote about that in the book because he is a musician and a designer. Um, and that's that's also, uh, I guess, my trade is music and design. And I, I find it really helpful to be able to when I am stuck on one and more often than not, I'm stuck on music. I can, you know, say, okay, I'm going to take a break here, but I still want to kind of keep my mind going and switch to design. Mm -hmm. And that really helps just because, you know, a lot of times that they'll give me the separation from the music. It'll kind of reduce my, I guess, frustration, but my overall creative output, if you looked at it in aggregate is still kind of progressing. And I think for me to feel not necessarily feel fulfilled, but at least kind of like have a, keep morale high <laughs> inside, I guess, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. good to kind of keep the, the, the graph moving upwards, even if it's in design or, or music, it kind of like, you can think, I usually think of it kind of as one thing. Were there, were there any like sort of interesting things that actually like after, after working on this book, you now do something that you didn't used to do <laughs> when you're facing creative block or those kinds of things? Yeah. And you know, I, I, I was afraid that I would be cursed with creative block. Like, you know, to the factor of, of a million after writing the book, I figured each person that wrote for the book would be cursed like a little bit. And then I'd be cursed, you know, I guess times 90. Um, yeah. but luckily like that didn't happen. I've actually, since the book's come out, I've been, been, uh, I've been doing pretty well. Um, I think, so these days what I do, uh, is, is primarily interface design. So the, the type of creativity that I need is much more of like a problem, a problem solving kind of an, like look searching for an objective solution, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, um, you know, starting a new piece of art, whether that's a poster or whatever it happens to be where the solution is not necessarily something that everyone can look at and be like, yep, you, right. you got it with that one. It's like, it's a little bit harder to tell. Yep. Um, so the types of blocks that I have these days are are much different than they used to be, and I, I would say that they're they're not necessarily easier, but they're they're very different, and mm -hmm. they require a different kind of strategy. Um, one that's a little bit more, I, I think, hard headed, and a few people in the book said this, which is basically, it's kind of the inverse of of stepping away. It's basically just to work, you know, keep basically forward progress however possible and so for me what that boils down to is if i'm working on say a new iphone app or something if i'm having a lot of trouble with uh you know one of the pages if as soon as trouble starts you know i switch gears you know okay i'll take care of sign up right now and then go do sign up because that's easy come back okay still no no nothing to do on this page i can't figure it out you know i'll go do the profile and knock that out really quick because that's easy and just basically maintaining forward motion no, no whatever the cost and then mm -hmm. by the time i end up getting back to that 
page or whatever it happens to be that I'm having trouble with, I've now solved you know six of seven problems for this interface that now I'm much more well equipped to solve that that trouble or you know troubling one. Um, and so that's kind of been my my new I guess way of working just because it's uh, it's a kind of a little bit of a different medium than than I used to work in. Yeah, it is interesting. I think the how much constraints breed creativity. And I do feel like inter interface design, you have these sort of built-in objective constraints into the yeah. actual, like you have clear problems and uh, it's sort of like, you know, trying to just freeform write can be challenging. And then you mm -hmm. add like, okay, now try to write uh, a haiku. All of a sudden you start coming up with fascinatingly interesting word pairings and things because yeah. of that constraint. Um, yeah. Yeah. So do you find music becomes much more difficult than your normal design work now? Because it's sort of this, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't have the constraints that you have with an interface design. Yeah. And I think like that's the that's a good point. I mean, I, I think the trouble with music for me these days is I, I kind of feel that I almost don't have the um, the energy to necessarily uh, go and do, you know, spend all day designing and then go basically try to, I guess, solve, uh, quote, you know, solve a creative problem with like, say, writing a song. So what I, what I find the way I kind of maintain forward motion there is I'll do a lot of, uh, cover songs on YouTube just because that way I can kind of keep that forward motion, but I don't necessarily have to like, uh, expend too much creative energy just because, you know, at the end of the day, I necessarily, I don't necessarily have the energy to, to sit down and say, all right, you know, blank page, let's do this, you know, right. write a song. And I wish I did, you know, I, I wish I did, but I, I, and I probably, I, I, to be fair, don't try as often as I probably should, but I, <laughs> I like, I like having the, uh, you know, be, being able to have YouTube as an outlet when, and even if it is just like cover stuff, that actually is a great way to maintain an audience, build a following while kind of keeping the songwriting stuff on the back burner. Right. Huh. Yeah, it's really interesting, this idea of sort of the different sort of flavors of creativity, the sort of puzzle solving where there's a, you know, sort of a theoretical right and wrong, uh, or at yep. least, you know, sort of what works and what doesn't work, as opposed to more aesthetic yep. kind of decision making, uh, just, yeah, you know, where it's, uh, there's not, yeah, it's, it's much more abstract. I, yeah. um, my my band was uh um signed to A&M Records back in the oh, 90s wow. and cool. uh, and you know when you I sat down to write a song it was I, you know I had to sort of do all this soul searching and then later on in my musical career um I ended up doing soundtrack music for television commercials and oh, uh I, and I found that to be so like this in 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 a certain way so wonderfully zen because there was like yeah there was kind of a right and wrong and there were these clear constraints and it was 30 seconds and, uh, and you know, it's sort of interesting to take even sort of the same medium and start to narrow it down and, and narrow down the constraints to sort of make it like there's a right and wrong, even this sort of, uh, imposed right and wrong as, as in haiku. Um, you know, if you, if you pass in a haiku and it's the, mm -hmm wrong shape you know it's wrong yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no it is it is definitely interesting and i i find that with with a lot of the interface stuff you kind of get both like the objective stuff in the beginning when you're kind of laying out the the flow and then 
the the more subjective artistic part at the end when you kind of put the layer of paint on and it's like okay you know this this works you know quote mm-hmm. unquote um, but now let's make it look cool uh, and that part is you know is is as subjective as it was typically you know before typically so yeah. you kind of get a mix of both which is nice right and I think both kind of become an escape for one another I certainly yeah. have you know. Mm-hmm friends who had some success in the soundtrack music business and ended up diving deep into that. And I talked to them and they say like, I just want to write a song for myself. Yeah. Um, You know, I was actually, it's funny you mentioned that I was the other day, I was like trying to find music for a movie trailer and I found this like deep, like, you know, giant, I guess kind of underground world of people that write music for trailers and like that whole like 30 second song in a song, you know, like a song that goes through like eight different songs basically in 30 seconds. <laughs> and it was pretty crazy. You know, they're like forums and places where people are posting, like check out my new trailer song, you know, for like an action <laughs> suspense movie. And I actually, I was, I found one that I loved. Uh, I think I, I'll try to figure out what it was called. But anyway, I was watching a trailer the other day for Argo and they, that, that song was in there and I was like, no way. I, I know the guy that wrote that. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. That's funny. It, it, it's some, like sort of a, a hobby or something that people like aspire to is like making music for, for trailers. Yeah. That's I mean, funny. it seemed like it was a pretty vibrant online. I mean, I guess like almost anything, yeah. but it was a pretty vibrant online community for these. That's pretty cool. This, yeah. It was pretty cool. <laughs> I always wanted to have that movie trailer guy's voice and be able to do. Oh that. yeah, <laughs> yeah. The voice just, of God, they called him. Yeah, uh, I feel like I could, I could really get things done if I could just chime in with that voice sometimes. I know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I'd definitely be on a lot more podcasts if my voice sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alex, you, you, I mean, just in listing off all the different things that you do and the successes that you've had and uh, the fact that you've got a book out, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you, you have a lot of outlets. And as, as you've said, um, I think, you know, one of those, uh, one, one of your habits is, switching from one creative thing to another creative thing as opposed to, you know, I'm having a hard time writing this blog post. I'm going to go watch TV for the next eight hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> How, like, what do you, what do you feel like are your, your keys or habits to staying productive and sort of keeping, keeping things moving, keeping, uh, keeping track of the different tasks you have and ideas? Yeah, I I suppose there 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 are a couple ways to think about it. There's the like there's the super practical stuff, you know, that comes down to scheduling and how I handle my day and my my calendar and my email and that kind of stuff. And then there's the more I guess kind of motivational level of like how do I like stay engaged with with what I'm doing. And I think um, I've found that the less I have to worry about the uh, the former, the email and all that kind of craziness, the the easier it is for me to kind of maintain the appropriate level of, I guess, engagement with what I'm doing. So, and this this kind of crept up on me, but I feel like email and Twitter, and I I'm kind of addicted to RSS and or you know my my reader feed and everything like that, uh, and that crept up in a way that's kind of scared me, where I found you know that I was checking that kind of stuff really often, you know, like <laughs> really often. And, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, but it was, and it's, it's certainly not like a groundbreaking thing to say like, Oh, you know, it's such, this such a distraction, but the, I guess the kind of the magnitude of how distracting it became so quickly was, was really scary to me where, you know, I, I found that like, I, 
I was, I guess, consuming a lot more than I was producing. And I, I, I read an article about this recently. I forget who wrote it. Um, so I, I, maybe if you all have show notes, I can, I can send it to you later. But there was a great article about, you know, kind of trying to maintain a good ratio between what, how much you consume and how much you produce. And I found that there was a time when that ratio for me flipped. I was definitely like not making as much as I used to. And that was really troubling. Uh, and so I, I try to keep that, uh, the amount that I kind of ingest, uh, creative, uh, of like creative work to be, you know, the appropriate level where it's not distracting and it's not taking up too much time, but it still allows me to see what people are working on and, you know, like be inspired. So I guess practically that, you know, I have to make sure that that is taken care of. And then as far as deciding, you know, like, I guess what to work on and how to keep doing it. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, I guess I find that my mood is, is unfortunately kind of correlated with my output. Uh, you know, I, I am much more excited or, you know, I guess even if it's just going out to dinner later after I'm done working, if I had a, if I had a success of a day, I guess, mm -hmm. when it comes to making something, I am, you know, I'm kind of, I guess, much more visibly amped than I would be otherwise. And knowing that, I think that definitely keeps me motivated just because I much prefer to be that way than not to say I become depressed or anything, but I, you know, I, I know that it affects my mood quite a bit. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. I can too. <laughs> it's interesting how, like, I feel like there's a saturation point for me for intake where yeah. <clears throat> if I can stay below the sweet spot, which is hard to do, especially with the pervasiveness of things that feed things to me, like yeah. like you were talking about the twit you know Twitter and my feed reader and that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. but yeah, there's this thing that happens where creative block actually comes out of like be becoming so inundated with you know creative things and ideas mm -hmm. and things to think about and yeah. one of your one of the essays in your book and I'm I'm having a hard time remembering which one it was, but one of yeah. one of them was talking about like the brain as being sort of a highway, the creative brain. And, you know, as this highway and having all these lanes and having too many cars and all of the lanes like winds up creating a jam at some point and yeah, that, you know, finding those ways to clear, clear that out. Um, I find personally that I can, you know, even with email, like I, I've been bad about it lately again, but like with email, it's actually one of those things that I regularly end up being like, wow, it's, it's overwhelming me. I need to actually like set up my calendar and have marked times in the day that are email times. And that's when yeah. I do email. Um, yeah. Do you have things like that that kind of have helped you create, you know, keep that, keep that space? Um, well, I think, and I, I, um, I should mention, I think that eight lane highway one is Cam Rowland's uh, piece. If I remember, it's really, it's, it's right. a good one. Um, yeah, that sounds and right. I, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like for me, I, I start, I tried the thing where I say, okay, like I'm going to email, you know, five at the, the last five minutes of every hour will be my time to like, you know, kind of guess zone out, do, do some Twitter, do some email, see what's going on. And that, that didn't really work too well for me because I found that like I was kind of still having that, that, uh, that kind of distracting reach for, that kind of, you know, my, mm -hmm. I still thought about it. My, my concentration was still kind of interrupted. Um, so that didn't really work too well for me. I've, I found that the best way, um, for me is, it's kind of just like a, a forced unplug where it lasts a good bit longer than, uh, than an hour, you know, mm -hmm. where I'll just turn off, turn off my Wi-Fi connection. Cause I don't need the internet, uh, for, for my work, which is nice mm -hmm. unless I am, if, uh, except I guess when I was working on the book, but, um, 
So I'll do that. And I, you know, I've heard a lot of people will do, um, employ that strategy as well. Just turning off the internet where they have, I've never used any of those things where you install something on your computer and it blocks certain websites for like 20 minutes or something. Like if I turn my internet off, I I'm, I'm, you know, in control enough to be able to not turn my internet back on. Uh, I don't need to like block the web off or something, you know. Um, so, but I will do that. And that's a little harder at work sometimes because, you know, you can't necessarily, if, if people have questions for you about something, you can't be like, hold on, I'm in my hour of quiet, you know, mm-hmm. like go away. <laughs> so you can't, that's a little bit less, uh, less practical in the workplace, but, uh, it works at home, and I'm I, I'm lucky to get a few days to work at home. Uh, our office, we work only a few days in the office because we all know that we're more productive uh, at home. So we try to make make sure that we everybody has an opportunity to do that, which is nice. <laughs> Fascinating. So so your whole group, pretty much as a whole, feels like that they're more productive in a space that's sort of their more natural setting or something, or. Yeah, well, I think we all we we are are a very um, I guess uh, boisterous maybe is the right word uh, for office place. You know, there's a lot going on, and there are only twenty or twenty of us or so right now. Um, but there's a lot going on at work. You know, we've got a lot of engineers, a lot of uh, a lot of people in there. That there's always a question about something. You know, like some whether it's a product question or like, hey, like what what do we think about this next feature? How are we going to implement it? It's there's a lot, a lot of questions and answers and everything flying around during the day. So if you're trying to get some serious, like conceptual, you know, work done where you're like really trying to architect something that's has a lot of moving parts and you need to keep a lot in your mind. If you're constantly hearing people talk about something else, that can be very distracting. So we we try to have uh, or give everyone the opportunity to to work at home just to kind of have that kind of solace and. Uh, ability mm-hmm. to to really focus and so and that's that's really great because i i do find that the bulk of my actual production comes on the days when i'm at home and then the days when i'm at work or the days i check in with people say hey what do you think of this thing i did yesterday okay i'll make those changes the next time i'm at home you know it's that's mm-hmm. it's kind of the the global state of the union day or when we're when we're in the office right and yeah i find sometimes that i that that sort of background noise like there are times where i just want to go work from a coffee shop and it's sort of like that environment becomes white noise you know yeah i could see how in an office environment where the conversations all center around problems that you're actually in and things like that at that point it's no longer white noise it's hard to not engage yeah (laughs) because i i agree like you know coffee shop is can be great i think uh the yeah the issue at work is that typically the conversation if a conversation erupts, you know, a few desks down for me that I, I, it's, they're talking about something that I'm working on, you know, it's, so it's really hard not to, to jump up and get involved, you know, whereas right. like if two people at a coffee shop are talking about like, you know, the world series or something, I can, I can feel safe to be like, all right, whatever, you don't need to talk to them about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. so Alex, when, when I first opened your book, it, it, um, it kind of reminded me of um, Oblique Strategies. Uh, do you know the uh, yeah. Brian Eno, Peter Schmidt uh, deck of cards? Um, yeah. It, 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 you know, which was sort of, a, again, this sort of way of kind of breaking creative block or, uh, you know, when you kind of get to a crossroads and you're not quite sure, you know, which which direction to take. It was, uh, you know, some very oblique kind of, you know, these funny little statements like 
turn it upside down and um, mm-hmm. I'm, it was seeing sort of similar kind of stuff in in your in in your book are you are you thinking that would you I guess what's my question? How how would how would you like people to use your book? Would you like them to read it linearly all the way through, or or is it uh, better to pick it up and sort of pick a random page and and start there? I mean, certainly I was you know kind of picking a random page and had pretty mm. good success with that. But uh, yeah, well, I think it you know it. I would imagine you know there there are people that will know some people in the book and you know have be familiar with some of the designers and artists and musicians and stuff and i feel like those people should probably you know should, it's kind of fun to go and see what you know your favorite designer says first so i feel like people that know people in the book will do it that way mm-hmm. the book is certainly not designed to be read linearly uh it can be like i actually sequenced it uh very meticulously um in a way that i felt um you know, kind of makes sense from a flow perspective and, and also just how the, the, I guess the general theme of each piece. So they're not, there's not too much overlap, um, from one to the other. So it, it actually is sequenced in the way, I guess somebody might track out an album. I did think about that. I remember, uh, going back and forth with the publisher forever with the sequencing. So it is (laughs) on purpose the way it is, but it's not, it's definitely not meant to be, or it's, it's not, you don't have to read it that way. And I think like the oblique strategies, you can kind of open to a page, read one, and see if that's applicable to the problem that you have at hand. And I think uh, every strategy in there is not necessarily going to work for everyone that picks it up. You know, I think the reason there are 90 in there as opposed to one uh, is that I know that in the same way that each, I guess, type block is very different from the next, you know, each creative person obviously is very different from the next and needs to approach problems in different ways. And so, I think you know it's obvious to people that um, different creatives work in different ways and need different strategies. But I think one thing that people forget sometimes is that uh, the same person can have two very different types of, uh, I guess, creative impediments to their to their work. You know, like you might not be able to solve. You know, I've solved problems in the shower before, and then sometimes, most of the time, for me, taking a shower doesn't do anything other than clean my body. You know, but that's <laughs> a lot. Of, you know, a, a lot of people say when I'm in the shower, you know, mm-hmm. you hear that all the time. That's, that's, you know, a, a very, very common thing. Uh, for me, that doesn't work. So if I picked up the book and read anything along those lines, I would, you know, I'd have to move to something else. And that's, that's by design, you know, that's why there's so many different types of people in there and so many different types of strategies. Um, so that, you know, I think it, like you, you mentioned the oblique strategies, and I think that there is a similar element i don't think the 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 idea that for those was to read the all the cards in a row because they're actually pretty if i i don't have them and i i vaguely remember them but i remember them being pretty pretty disparate in what you know they were really different type of yeah uh, it would be no point in reading them linearly they they were very yeah yeah (laughs) and that yeah yeah, then that's the same way with the book although if you are interested to to see the you know i guess or at least experience it the way i intended it to be in order that i did sequence it that way on purpose. yeah when, when i got the book i started at the beginning but i'm yeah i guess i'm cool. just that tells you the difference between jeff and myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm know. the linear guy yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but i i actually thought it was interesting because you're right it doesn't uh you don't you don't read like 
you know, 12 people in a row saying, go take a shower. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. in fact, there's some, there's even like little notes of high notes of like dramatic disparity between where you'll all of a sudden you'll have one person after three people that were talking about the way they disengage or something. And then you'll yeah. have somebody say, the key is to engage, like <laughs> keep, yeah. no, keep totally. engaging. And, and it's just yeah. really fascinating to, 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 it's funny how, like, I think broadly, I, I noticed a lot of people feeling like, or what came through from a lot of people was just this sense of, you know, this, it's nuanced and this is, this, this, these are the kinds of things I, I do and stuff. And then there mm-hmm. were, it's a more of a rarity to have somebody say, you know, this is the answer. Um, this is, yeah. this is my thing. And, and I think it's, you know, people finding it the answer for them. Uh, right. and, and, you know, as people sort of, uh, go through this book, they'll find what resonates with them or they'll try different things. I know certainly for me, you know, I've tried lots of different things. And when you find something to work mm-hmm. that works, I don't know if I've necessarily found a universal truth, but I've certainly found a trick uh, right. that, that, you know, and I'm going to use that again right? because uh, I know it's something I can go to that works. Yeah. Um, then there, there are, I actually really enjoyed the ones that were very specific. And obviously sometimes there, if you're not, say, a writer, uh, there's one, I think it's Claire Detterer's that says, it's a very, very specific solution and that works best probably for fiction writing where she uh-huh. goes and picks two random sentences from two random books, combines them, and then imagines a story stemming from yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's uh, Jessica Hagee. Uh, might be, yeah, might, I, yeah, I, I knew yeah. I highlighted that. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. She, had, yeah. she had two different things. She had... She first said, go book the most expensive hotel you can find, which (laughs) I thought was just this amazing idea, like, because I'm not going to let myself not be productive while I'm spending this much money. Um, Yeah. Yeah, That's a hilarious idea, I thought. And then she, yeah, she talked about just pinpointing a random page in a random sentence. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's so specific. I I actually found myself trying to figure out how to apply it to a non- writing kind of task like what's a similar way uh but it, it's so interesting i mean it, yeah I, certainly i've had that and and i've tried that you know go mm-hmm. go stay somewhere where it's like this is going to be very important but then i yep. found it to be almost too important you know uh the uh, the thing for me was uh you know i would buy these like really nice leather bound or people would give them to me as gifts like this is going to be my lyric book you know <laughs> yeah, everything yeah. that i write in here is going to be magic and i would find that i was like afraid to write in it and so my mm-hmm. best thing <clears throat> was to literally go out and buy the, the like 80 cent uh you know spiral bound notebook pads yeah at, at you know at the drugstore or or the convenience store like just totally not special um, yeah. And then I could, yeah. and then I could just mess it up. I could just, yeah. you know, rip out pages, and I could, I didn't need to be careful, you know. Yeah. And for me, that that worked better. But yeah, everybody's got their own thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that I have kind of the electronic equivalent of that these days, where I find I I have a lot of uh, hard, you know, like hard copy notebooks and stuff but these days I take most of my notes on the computer and I, I remember downloading Evernote and a lot of these kind of like fancy cloud based um, note taking things and I still find my best notes my best things are I just open a text edit file real quick and yeah, save it to the desktop it, that's kind of like the electronic 80 cent notepad you know it's, yeah. it's just nothing but a text editor and I you know I love I love having text edit open to just just you know 
stream of consciousness type stuff in there. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I find that I open text edit all the time for that same reason. And I always switch the format to plain text as soon as yeah. I open it, which is yeah. really strange now that I think about it. I, yeah. I yeah. use notational velocity, which is even more lo-fi than, than, uh, text edit and, uh, and meant for just that, just big stacks of notes right on well uh you know this is i'm i'm glad you all enjoyed the book that's been uh it's been exciting to have it out there yeah yeah you have you gotten a good response from it it seems like yeah you know it's funny i i i guess i'm used to being in the startup world these days i'm used to like really complex sales metrics and graphs and audience (laughs) engagement you know by the minute and all this kind of stuff and i was I guess not surprised, but kind of, I guess, frustrated to learn that that's kind of not how book publishing works. You know, like (laughs) the sales report comes at the end of the year, you know, and like the it's it's very they don't have quite the same up to the minute. um, Wow. I guess analytics that I'm used to. So, you know, it's there are only so many ways to gauge the response. Like the the reviews have been great. Uh, The the book is periodically out of stock on Amazon, which I only take to be a good thing. I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than other than hearing about you know how people have or people that have read it, what they thought of it, and and reading reviews and that kind of thing, that's kind of my only touch point, and it's all been very positive. And I think uh, that's that's great to hear. And you know, I think it's it's interesting because. It's not necessarily a, periodically people will uh, refer to it as my book, and I, I guess obviously my name's on the front. But I, it's a collection of strategies from uh, a lot of the designers that I respect, and you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the majority of the writing is not my own. So it's sometimes kind of a, a weird experience to read about this book and read reviews and everything right. that I, that I kind of put together. I think you know, I'm I guess technically the editor. Um, mm-hmm. But it it can, it's a it's a kind of a funny thing because I think I think of it very personally as my my book, but I it's not necessarily it's not necessarily my writing. So it's a sure it's a it's a weird separation when it comes to hearing the feedback, I guess. But um, it, it's yeah. actually a very very graphic book. For those of you listening to the podcast, you go pick it up. Uh, when you look at it, it's like full of sort of typographic and other kinds of illustrations that go along with mm-hmm. almost I think every essay in the thing. I don't remember coming across very many yeah. that, that don't have something and is is that was that directed by the people who who wrote the thing or did you go through and and sort of support all of them uh, with design yeah so this is actually a pretty interesting um thing you mentioned i'm glad we were talking about it because i so i actually i didn't design the book myself and i think the fact that i'm a designer makes most people assume that i did mm-hmm. um which is kind of you know, makes sense, I guess, because that's my job. So people would think, why wouldn't I design my book? But when actually, when it comes to the design of the book and especially the cover, uh, there were a lot of um, approval processes and like a lot of things in place where I would have kind of had to stop my job to to design the book full time and work with the publisher to get something that they were excited about. Um, so they have an in-house team that that takes care of that. And originally, the plan was to. Uh, I wanted to have a piece of everyone that wrote a little bit of their work kind of next to their strategy to kind of not to for the people that don't know everyone in the book. Cause I don't mm-hmm. think any one person's going to know everyone in the book. Um, <clears throat> but it'd be, I thought it would have been nice to have an example, kind of a proof of their creative, uh, mastery, you know, next to their, uh, next to their strategy that I think turned out to be a little bit too, uh, I guess 
probably expensive, but you know, color intensive and it was just, right. it was going to be a little complicated. Also just getting a piece of work at print quality from every person would have been a task in itself. So we didn't end up going that way. I kind of, I see that I saw the book a little bit more utilitarian and like a little bit cleaner and, and I guess less exciting, but you know, the publisher really wanted to make sure that it was something that was, would stand out and be engaging visually for people, which I think is a good point. Um, so we went back and forth on it for quite a while and, uh, eventually ended up with how you see it today. Um, I was sad not to have a hand in the design just because I, you know, I have a, I, that's what I do, but I right. think I, I didn't, I wouldn't have had the opportunity or wouldn't have had the time, unfortunately to do it. Um, but they, you know, they like, they have a very talented, uh, in-house design team. So was the color shift from front to back? Is that is there is there a was was that just a oh it would be neat to have a color shift from front to back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so that that came about the original. I remember some of the original designs had great. There were the periodic gradient in there, and I've never been a fan of the gradient um, for a gradient sake. I guess like I I'm used to more like uh, I guess skeuomorphic type gradients where you're doing something that you want to look like there's a light source and an interface and you, mm-hmm. you know, need to put an employee gradient or something like that. So with that, that was, that was one of the last, I think, design elements that was put in. And I guess the very, very broad conceptual reason was just that as you go through the book, you kind of like come out of this darkness into, in this, in this case, blue, <laughs> but you know, you're going from the, the darker color to the lighter color to kind of very, very, I guess, um, uh, symbolically, uh, show coming out of a creative block. And, you know, it's a cool, like, it's one of those things where I liked it cause I just thought in, in the way that it is just a gradient for gradient sake, it's kind of a fun thing to notice as you go through. Not everyone will, will see that, uh, when they're reading, which is, which is nice. Cause you know, if you, if you don't kind of turn the pages that certain way, you don't, you don't get the effect. Right. Um, I remember there was one, uh, Stefan Sagmeister had a, had a, had a similar effect. I think on his first book where it said, I think it said Sagmeister. If you like bent the pages that way, it had his name kind of like written in there, which I, I remember really liking that. Um, this is a much simpler version of that trick, I guess. Right. This is sort of like a, a really, really lo-fi flip book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like yeah, it gets as, as basic a scene as possible. Yeah, <laughs> there are great. no subjects. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. thanks a lot for taking time to join us, Alex. And for those of you listening, be sure to go out and pick up his book. Just again, it's called Breakthrough: Overcome Creative Block and Spark Your Imagination. Uh, it's a great book, and even if you just pick through it and pick random little things here and there, I'm sure you'll get ideas for uh, the next time you face creative block. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much, guys, for having me. It's been great talking to you. Super. Thanks again.